Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. Last week we had one of the saddest, most tragic stories in the Scriptures, in my opinion. Man, you've got a great guy. A uh, productive young man. Hard-working young man. Um, and a man that's more looked at as more righteous than people around him. Studies the law. Knows the Word of God. An el- a ruler in the synagogue. And he actually recognizes Jesus as above the other rabbis. He runs to him. Eager to find out how to get to that next level of righteousness and the next level of the blessing of God, he falls down before Jesus and asks him what good thing he has to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus points him to the basics of the commandments and that's not satisfying to him. So Jesus gives him the actual answer, hey, you've got to follow me. (laughs) You've got to get rid of all of your possessions, everything that you've had in this old system and come and follow me. And he goes away sorrowful. He doesn't believe Jesus enough to divest himself of everything he knows, everything he has and follow Christ. He doesn't believe. The problem is he doesn't believe Jesus. And he goes away sorrowful because he had many possessions. He owned much property. And this week, Jesus turns this tragic response of this rich young ruler into a lesson for his disciples concerning wealth. In Matthew 19, 23 through 26, right after this young man heard this statement and went away grieving because he owned much property, Jesus said to his disciples... Truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished. And they said, who then can be saved? And looking at them... Jesus said to them, With man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We're going to look this morning, breaking this up into the difficulty stated, the difficulty illustrated, the possibility questioned by the disciples, and then the possibility confirmed. What is this difficulty that's stated by Jesus in verse 23? Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But let's begin before we get into the, actually the, the, the statement itself, the difficulty itself. This familiar phrase, truly I say to you. That is an illustration there of Christ's authority. We kind of pass over it because, man, it's a familiar statement to us, isn't it? You read it over and over again in the Scriptures. uh, Truly I say unto you. Or I tell you truly, your version might say. Or if you love the old King James Version like I grew up with, uh, verily I say to you. So familiar. Thirty times in the book of Matthew you see this, truly I say to you. Thirteen times in the book of Mark. Six times in the book of Luke. And another twenty times in John. Luke's version even says, Verily, verily. It says it twice. Or truly, truly. Uh, Because of our familiarity with these words, we might accidentally miss the significance. Although, this word for truly, it's amen. So, although amen was a 
Amen was a common enough word. The rabbis never followed those, that word with I say unto you. And there's a reason for that. The Hebrew word Amen denotes faithfulness. It denotes reliability, a certainty. Absolutely. This is absolutely true. Absolutely truthful. Absolutely certain. So the Jews used a man respectively and responsively as a verbal agreement to the reading of Scripture or to a statement from the tradition of the elders or to conclude a formal doxology. They would end those things that were not their own words with an amen, with a, this has an authority beyond us all. It carried the idea of divine or absolute authority. A man was saying, what you just heard carries behind it the authority of heaven. They rooted it in Isaiah 65, 16. He who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, your version will say, but it's the God of Amen. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of Amen. So if we're going to say Amen, we're putting the stamp of absolute authority on this. This is God's words. When one declared something as absolutely faithful, absolutely reliable, or absolutely certain, they were doing so based on the authority of the God of a man. A rabbi was to root a pronouncement in God's authority, not his own. But Jesus would use the word amen and then root the declaration in his own authority. He would say, amen, truly, certainly, I say unto you. In this construction, the Amen asserts that he, the speaker, he in himself has the personal authority reserved for God alone. This feature was one of the distinctives of Jesus' teaching style and it set him apart from all the other rabbis. It's a, it's a subtle, thinly veiled allusion to his deity. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when, the, when Jesus finished these words, the crowds were astonished. They were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like one of their scribes. There was a difference in Jesus' teaching. We see Jesus identify, uh, identify himself as the God of Amen in Revelation 3.14 to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is saying, I'm the God of Amen in the book of Revelation. So this verily I say unto you, or truly I say unto you, Amen I say unto you is a statement of authority that is above everything you think you know. When Jesus pulls out this, Amen, I say unto you, He does so to emphasize something especially important. Particularly things that go against the traditional understanding of the day. When Jesus says, after, what Jesus says after this, truly I say unto you, construct is almost always something that the hearers would have found shocking or completely uncomfortable. It would have set them aback. Now, what shocking, uncomfortable truth is Jesus rooting in his own authority as Messiah? Saying, I know you all think this, but I'm telling you different based on my authority as the Messiah. What is it? Well, the assertion itself is that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's going directly against what they thought. It is only with difficulty that a rich man 
can enter the kingdom of heaven. An old Jewish papyrus reads, it uses this word, if, if you cannot open the basket yourself, for it opens with difficulty, give it to the key maker and he'll open it for you. So the idea is something difficult to get into, something that one might be unlikely to accomplish on his own. Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, implying that he might not be able to get into the kingdom on his own. This phrase doesn't hit us with the same thud that it would have hit them with because in our pietistic, success-hating, wealth-despising culture, most people think, well, well, no duh, Sherlock, right? Of course it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Those money-hungry, oppressive, greedy rich people, how are they going to get into heaven? But in that culture, at that time, they thought exactly the opposite. Jesus is correcting their cultural understanding, which is that the rich actually have a leg up. The idea that it was difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven went completely against the grain. Wealth was considered both as an advantage to being righteous. You say, what? You could be more righteous if you were wealthy because you could give alms and offerings to gain God's favor. That's how they thought. And as a blessing for being righteous as well, meaning that wealth was a sign that a man's ways had pleased the Lord. And such, such thinking wasn't completely unfounded, especially that, that second part wasn't completely unfounded. The Old Testament presents riches as one of the ways that God confirms His covenant with His people. We looked at it last week, Deuteronomy 8, 18-20. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you the power to make wealth. He gives the pa- who gives the power to make wealth? Well, God does. And why? So that He might confirm His covenant which He swore to your fathers. There was an expectation that a man who was rich was rich because in general such a man was blessed by God for keeping the commandments of God. They, they hadn't forgotten Psalm 1, 1 through 3, that how blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. So they thought that way. This man has wealth. He's meditated on the law. God has blessed him for understanding the law and keeping the law and not walking with sinful men. And obviously, he's going to be more righteous in their minds than your average Joe Schmo who doesn't have anything. That's how they thought. Wealth was looked at as a manifestation of kingdom blessing, of the fruit of diligence. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes one rich. Proverbs 10.22, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. So the wealthy who attained their riches through hard work and shrewd business dealings were considered the most righteous and blessed in all of Israel. It was they who could give the most alms along with their prayers and their fastings which were cornerstones of pharisaical righteousness. You can read about that in Matthew 6, 1-18. through that they, they majored on those things and they did them very ostentatiously so everybody would see how righteous they are and they would be looked at as the most righteous men in all the land. So with that understanding, considering how shocking this statement would have been, truly... Amen. I say unto you, with all the authority of heaven behind what I'm saying, Jesus tells them, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Before we move forward, let's briefly consider the mood of this text. You remember that Jesus is emotional in this moment. 
What did he feel toward this rich young ruler who went away because he had much, much possessions? He had a love for him, didn't he? Jesus is moved with compassion. He, his heart goes out to him. When, when, and Jesus said, the Bible tells us he loved him right after he says that all these things I've kept from my, my, my youth. And, Jesus, and Mark tells us that Jesus felt a love for him. Undoubtedly, Jesus sees this rich young ruler turn his back on the kingdom of heaven and the promise of eternal life, and his grief spills over into this proclamation. Jesus was an emotional man. This isn't some calloused, matter-of-fact assertion. There's brokenness and anguish over this man's helpless state in these words. Such emotions characterized Jesus' ministry. He didn't just like, oh, well, they wouldn't hear me and I don't care. I've heard Reformed people act that way. Well, you know, all I did, I put the truth out there and if they don't have it, it's all on them. There must be a brokenness in us when people's sin keeps them from the kingdom. There must be. There's something wrong with you. You're not imaging God. You're not like King Jesus when you're, oh well, I told them and they wouldn't listen. I don't care. That's not godly. You might think it's great theology. No, it's godless wickedness in your heart. Lovelessness in your heart. Jesus was a, was a Messiah who would, Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way that a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. There's a brokenness in Jesus when people won't come. Are you grieved over those who are blind and deaf to the call of the gospel? Are you? If you're not, then pray that God graces you with such a grief. When you plead with sinners, plead with an aching heart. If they can't see tears in your eyes, they should at least hear them in your voice. There must be an earnestness and a real concern for their soul. I just care about the glory of God. Oh, that's great. That's one tablet of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But what about love your neighbor as yourself? What about that I would that my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh would come to Christ and I would be accursed if I could see that come about? What about that? Because that's the heart of a Christian. There must be a seriousness, an earnestness, a brokenness, and an urgency when we consider the possibility of an image bearer of God missing out on the blessings of the kingdom. Now after seeing this difficulty stated by Jesus, that it's hard for the rich to inherit the kingdom of heaven, it gets from a shocking assertion, a shocking difficulty stated, to a difficulty illustrated in an even more shocking way. Verse 24, Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. little parentheses I have to do real quick before we actually get into things that matter in this text. But when people misuse concepts in the Bible, you've got to correct that, right? So before we get to the actual point, verse 24, it calls it the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of heaven. Do you see that? 24 and 25. Some people try to invent a difference between the two. Well, the kingdom of God is one thing and the kingdom of heaven is another thing. Uh, Jesus is using those phrases interchangeably here. He's using them as synonyms. 
Typically, he says kingdom of heaven because it was offensive to the Jews to use the name God at all. But here, when he's talking to his disciples, Matthew quotes him directly of what he actually said to the disciples. And he said kingdom of God to the disciples, and he keeps that language here. But it's exactly the same thing. And when, when we try to uh, press down on, on things and invent things that aren't there and explain away, sometimes we do too much and we, we get to false doctrine off of that. So the point here has nothing to do with the change from kingdom of heaven to kingdom of God and everything to do with increasing the shock of this paradigm-shifting teaching. Okay? Matthew uses again pretty often. Notice 24, it starts with again I say unto you. He uses again 17, 17 times in, in the gospel. But this is one of only two places where he has it with the I say unto you. Again serves as an amplifier to the previous statement. He's saying, amen, I say unto you. Again, on top of that, I'm going to, I'm going to put something extra on top of this. That shocked you and now I'm going to build on that. It has the meaning of furthermore, builds on the preceding statement while giving the follow-up statement even greater emphasis than the first statement. That's what's going on here. That it would be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God was a shocking, paradigm-shifting thought. And Jesus underlines it, bolds it, and italicizes it with an exclamation mark in this illustration. Again, and on top of that, I'm going to double down on what I just said with this illustration. With the same appeal to his own inherent authority to go against the accepted teaching and understanding of their day, Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, is Jesus illustrating how it is possible but with difficulty? Or is he illustrating how the difficulty extends even to an impossibility? Because people take it both ways. People teach it both ways. Have you ever heard of a small city gate within a large double gate of the city walls in Jerusalem? The, the gates are said to have existed so that pedestrians could enter the city without the need for the large gate to be opened as it would for a camel train. They say that these smaller gates were called the eye of the needle. And it would have been extremely difficult yet possible to get a camel through one of these little pedestrian gates. Like it was made for people to walk through and a camel, it's just too, it's too low. And it, the camel would have to be stripped of its heavy load and have to get down on its knees and kind of scooch. I mean, can you imagine a camel with its load completely gone and you get the camel down on its knees and you're, you're getting the camel to scooch forward? I mean, who would even do that? But it is possible, but it would be very, very hard. Well, that kind of makes some sense, doesn't it? It makes sense, but there's a few problems. The Bible never mentions any such gate. That's a problem. You say, well, the Bible doesn't mention a lot of things that are true just because it's not in the Bible. Well, no Jewish writings mention any such gate. Oh, well, they must have found it in archaeology. And nope, there's no archaeological finds of any such gate that existed. And no one in the early church explained the text that way. Uh, they didn't refer to any such gate. Nobody started teaching about this camel gate, the eye of the needle, until like the 1800s. You know why? Because there wasn't no such gate. That's why. That if you've heard 
of the eye of the needle explanation of this text, if you've heard it used and you bought into it, then let this be a lesson to you. Just because something preaches good, just because something sounds good, just because it resonates with you, it doesn't make it so. That's not what this text is saying. They are misused. Bad exegesis can lead to some good preaching, but false doctrine. Not what the text is saying. So let's explore the other option. Is Jesus illustrating how that this difficulty extends to even to impossibility? Is that what's going on? Well, that seems to be the case. There was a Persian expression at the time of Christ that was used in a humorous way to express the impossibility of something. That expression was that it would be easier for an elephant to pass through the eye of a needle than for this or that to be accomplished. You can find that in actual Jewish writings. They would, actually, yes, Talmudic, Talmudic writings and other writings of that time period. An elephant was the largest animal in Mesopotamia, so the Persians used the elephant in their sayings. And it seems that Jesus is borrowing their familiar saying but replaces the elephant with the largest animal in Israel at the time, the camel. But the idea, the idea is still the same. The text refers to a literal camel and a literal eye of a literal sewing needle. And the point is obvious. You ain't going to get no camel through no eye, no sewing needle. That's not happening. This is absolutely impossible. You talk about difficult... You're not doing... I, I, I have problems threading a needle with actual thread. I ain't shoving no camel through an eye of a needle. You're not going to be able to do that, are you? Jesus says first that it's difficult for the rich man, those that everyone thought had a leg up on everyone else, to enter the kingdom of God. And then he uses this vivid illustration to amplify that difficulty to an impossibility. And the disciples absolutely understood Jesus' point that way, which is why we see the possibility questioned immediately following. How did the disciples respond? Verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished. And they said, Who then can be saved? Notice the disciples don't respond by saying, Ooh, that makes sense. Although it's difficult, it can be done. Like the camel, the rich man just needs to remove the burden of his riches and humbly fall on his knees and then he can enter. Ah, I get it. No, 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 they don't say that. Their answer isn't, Oh, that makes sense. It's hard but possible. They say, That's impossible. Who can be saved? If that's the case, who can be saved? Now we see two responses from them, an emotional and a verbal response. Look at their emotional response. It's astonishment. In fact, they are described as being, you've got an amplifier there, don't you, as being very astonished. Astonished by itself is a big deal. Very astonished is a bigger deal. What's astonished me? The word here is ekpleso. We've read into that a few times throughout the book of Matthew, haven't we? Ekpleso. And it means to be beside oneself, to be overwhelmed. to be. They were panicked, it says, by this idea. Why are they panicked? Because for centuries the rabbis had taught that the accumulation of wealth was a chief virtue. They even taught that it was not only unwise but sinful for a person to give away more than one-fifth of what they owned. Of what they owned, I mean. Why? Because it would impair their ability to accumulate more and thus to give more. 
They reasoned that God was pleased with a gift in direct proportion to its size. Therefore, the more one gave out of that permissible one-fifth, the more he found favor with God. So gain more money, give more money, and then with the money you still have left, gain more money because money helps you make money. And then give out of that more and more. So you can give more... I mean, you can gain more, then give more, and then get more favor with God. And then when you get more favor with God, you'll gain more, and then you can give more. And it's this cycle. And the more you give, the more pleased God is with you. These ideas were so strongly entrenched in Jewish thinking that almsgiving was understood as a way of buying salvation, basically. Much like the indulgences of the Middle Ages that Luther was correcting. Ain't nothing new under the sun. Satan has the same devices. He just regurgitates them, recycles them over and over. Same deceptions, doesn't he? So, for Jesus to teach that it was humanly impossible for the wealthy to enter the kingdom was a terrifying statement. Even for these disciples. That's not how they thought. And Jesus, with the authority of heaven, truly, I say to you, it's hard. Not only is it hard, it's impossible for even the wealthy. He rocked their world. The rich could afford the largest and choicest of the sacrificial animals. They could give large amounts to the temple and their local synagogues. And they never lacked for money to drop into the 13 conspicuously located trumpet-shaped receptacles in the court of the women. They loved doing that because everybody thought, Wow, these people, they're so giving and so generous. Look how righteous they are. That's how they were viewed. Jesus has given some indications that the wealthy could possibly miss out on reward throughout the book of Matthew. It was possible. And even that was wild for them. But Jesus emphasized that sometimes they gave with idolatrous motives. Remember, when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say unto you, they have their reward already. So he's saying it's possible that they're giving with wrong motives and they'll miss reward. He had said that. Uh, the impossibility of serving God and mammon. Chris mentioned that earlier. That's Matthew 6.24. And for some, the deceitfulness of riches would choke out the message of the kingdom in Matthew 13.22. For some. But this statement's different. It's not saying it's possible for the rich to miss out on the reward. It's all the more shocking because it's saying it's impossible for them to gain it at all. It's not possible that they might miss it. It's impossible for them to gain it. You see why their world's rocked? Why they're very astonished? They didn't know what to do with this. So in their astonishment, we get their verbal response. And they said, they were very astonished, and they said, who then can be saved? Can't you just hear the hopelessness in these words? Who then can be saved? The disciples very clearly understand exactly what Jesus was saying and it shook them up. If Jesus is saying that it's, it is just as difficult for a rich man to get into heaven as it would be to cram a camel through the eye of a sewing needle, and if, as they've always believed, rich men were typically more righteous than the average man, their astonishment is the only appropriate remotion. And the declaration of hopelessness is the only appropriate words. So through, with a shaking voice, the disciples burst out in the panicked question, who then can be saved? If it was impossible for those on whom the blessing of God was so obvious, if it was impossible for them to enter the kingdom, what would that mean for lesser men 
If it's impossible for the rich to be saved, how much more impossible would it be for everyone else? But now we get to the ground of our hope and the possibility confirmed. There is a hope. Jesus affirms the possibility of both the rich and the poor being saved. But undoubtedly, the source of that possibility would have been completely unexpected. But before, before, we, before Jesus speaks, we see a loud, silent pause. That's what I'm calling it. Uh, you ever have a, a, a loud silence where the silence is palpable? A question is answered and nobody speaks and it just goes dead silent? That's what happens here. They ask, who then can be saved? Jesus doesn't speak immediately. He, it says, and looking at them. Jesus said to them, there's a pause here. We're so quick to speak sometimes that we rob pivotal moments of their gravity. Jesus wasn't guilty of such foolishness. They ask this question and he looks at them. The word here is to look closely, to look directly at or intently at, to stare them all in the face. So he's, he's making eye contact with all of them, gazing across all twelve. He gazes earnestly on them. He considers and he thinks about their question. And then Jesus lovingly looks at his overwhelmed, panicked, and astonished disciples and lets the gravity of the moment wash over them. Feel the weight of this question you're asking. Who then can be saved? He doesn't comfort them with an affirming saying, well, of course it's possible. He didn't say that. He doesn't admit to exaggeration or hyperbole with the camel through the eye of the needle illustration because there was no hyperbole or exaggeration. He knowingly gazes at them, allowing them uh, the astonishment to accomplish its full purpose. And then the first words out of his mouth would only add to their despair. He, he gives them a humbling agreement. He says, with man this is impossible. That's where he goes. That's the first thing he says. With man it is impossible. Jesus agrees with them. The disciples suggest that if what Jesus says is true about the impossibility of a rich man entering the kingdom of God, then it would be impossible for any man. If it's impossible for them, then it would be impossible for anybody. That's, that's, what, that's where they go. That's their logical conclusion. And he agrees with them. After gazing on them, Jesus agrees with their hopeless response. Oh, how helpless we are. We've got to feel the weight of that. We're helpless. Notice, this statement isn't a statement about the impossibility of the rich entering the kingdom. This one's not. It's not what this is. The disciples ask, who then can be saved? And Jesus responds by saying, with man, with all men, this, this, this is, being saved is impossible. With all men, it is impossible for any of the men, any man at all on the planet, it's impossible for any of you to be saved. That's, that's the conclusion. Many people try to make this text say that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for, for, for a poor man. Well, that's not true. It's not what it's saying. Mark makes it very clear that that's not what Jesus is saying. You, you take my word for it. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn here. But Mark 10, 23 through 27, Jesus looking around said to his disciples, this is Mark's version, how hard it is for those who are wealthy. He limits it, this, this uh, statement to the rich. 
how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples were amazed at its words, but Jesus answered again and said, Children, how hard it is for the kingdom of... Uh, for, for how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. So he extends the difficulty to all men in the second statement, in Mark's version. How hard it is for the wealthy, and then how hard it is just to enter. It's easier for a camel to go through the uh, eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, expresses the impossibility for the rich. And then they were even more astonished and said, Who then can be saved? And looking around at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible. Extends the possibility to all men. He's making a universal statement here. Not wealth makes it harder. How do you get harder than impossible? You can't get harder than impossible. Impossible is impossible. Michael Jordan was an amazing jumper in his prime. You know, who here knows who Michael Jordan is? He was an amazing jumper. Me, not so much. Right? Now, which one of us would have had a better chance at jumping over the widest part of the Grand Canyon? Well, to, to break it down into percentages, he would have had a 0% chance. And me, though, I would have had a 0% chance. Who had a greater chance? Who, had, who, who, who was it more possible for? Well, it was impossible for both. Neither one could do it. Zero percent chance. So, we're tied. I'm tied with Michael Jordan on the possibility of jumping over the Grand Canyon. There is abs- absolutely no way either of us could make that. And the, because the Grand Canyon is too wide for any man to jump across. And likewise, both rich and poor have a 0% chance of crossing the chasm between our sinfulness and God's holiness. It can't be jumped. That's the point. Nobody can do this. All of mankind is conceived in sin and we are slaves to sin. No one misses the kingdom of heaven because of external factors. You were born poor, so you had less of a shot. Or you were born rich, so you had less of a shot. No, you don't miss the kingdom because of external factors. Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The problem is, none of us are righteous. Not even one. There's none who understand. There's none who seek after God. The problem is, the one thing that can deliver you, you don't have it. That's the problem. And although some rich men are more righteous than other rich men, no rich men are good enough for God. And although some poor men are more righteous than other poor men, no poor men are good enough for God. You won't miss out on eternal life because you're rich, neither will you miss it because you're poor. They miss out on the kingdom because of internal factors. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And these defile the man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. You ever had an evil thought? That's why you won't make it. Out of the heart come murders, or adulteries, or fornications, or thefts, or false witness, or slander. They all come from your heart. Not external factors. The things that are in you come out because you're wicked. You're not righteous. The one thing that can deliver you from death, you don't have it. The sinful human heart will turn both external situations, either wealth or poverty, into sinful manifestations every time. We see that illustrated in Proverbs 30, 8 through 9, where, there, where Solomon says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. 
Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who's the Lord? Self-sufficiency because you're rich. Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of the Lord my God. So the rich sin and then the poor, what do they do? They sin. I'll tell you what, you say, well, I need to be middle class and then I won't sin. That won't solve your problem either. You'll find yourself on both sides of that equation at different times, won't you? The rich man is blessed with riches and he turns them into a curse by making an idol out of the riches. The poor man lacks wealth, but his heart is filled with covetousness, wanting what the rich man has, which is idolatry no less than the rich man's love of the wealth that he does have. The rich man slanders the poor man, calling him lazy when he has no idea about his circumstances, which is bearing false witness. And the poor man slanders the rich man as greedy when he has no idea what's in his heart, which once again is what? False witness. The rich man becomes proud of heart and looks down on the poor man. The poor man becomes envious at heart and despises the rich man without a cause. The rich man battles with self-reliance. The poor man battles with entitlement and resentment. The rich man struggles with the pride of life. The poor man struggles with the lust of the eye, wanting what he doesn't have. And they both together struggle with the lust of the flesh. Most damnably of all, it manifests itself so early, this disease of sin, doesn't it? When the little kid has a toy and refuses to share, or the little kid doesn't have the toy and pitches an absolute fit because of his jealousy and envy, who has the chance of making it? Well, they're not righteous. They're not, the little kids, and then we grow up and we just have different manifestations of not being righteous. But guess what? We're not righteous. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Out of the heart, these things come. So if your heart's corrupt, how are you ever going to enter the kingdom by your own efforts, whether you're rich or whether you're poor? With man, indeed, it absolutely is impossible. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9. Romans 3.20. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, because by the law comes only the knowledge of sin. So if entering the kingdom is impossible for man, then where's our hope? I said that the possibility was confirmed with man. It's impossible. Well, the hope-filled assertion here is that with man it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That's the thing. With man, rich and poor alike, it's impossible to be saved. But with God, rich man, like the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, and Job, all rich men, they were all saved, weren't they? Remember, even in the Abrahamic covenant, when Sarah's going to have a baby at 90 years old, and she laughs because of the impossibility, and what is the angel's response? Is anything too hard for the Lord? God's got to be the one that establishes these things. He's got to be the one that does it. He's the actor. He's where the possibility of covenant blessing comes from. It's all from Him. New Testament saints like Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man who allowed Jesus to be buried in his tomb, or Nicodemus or Zacchaeus, or our gospel writer Matthew, the one rich among all the other poor. God even desires that kings and those that are in authority be saved. It says in 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. And good news, guys, they're going to be. We're going to see this spread. It's going to take some time, but we're going to see the evangelization of the nations.
And poor men like the Old Testament prophets, Amos and Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah, most of the New Testament apostles, God does the impossible every time He draws a sinner to Himself. Every single time. Because He can fix the heart. The heart's the problem and the heart's the solution. He gives a new heart. He takes out the stony heart and places within you a heart of flesh that desires to do His will. To where if you have riches, they're not an idol to you. Or if you lack them, you don't care. You have joy anyway. And that's exactly what Paul says in Philippians 4, 11-13. Not that I speak from want. For I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. I know how to get along with humble means and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, both of living abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. That's not a basketball verse. That's a, I can deal, I can beat my idols because of my trust in Christ, because He's done it in me. Had the rich young ruler sold everything that he had and given it to the poor, but refused to follow Jesus, he would have never gained eternal life and entered the kingdom of heaven. In following Jesus, he would have seen where this greatest need was fulfilled. He, like all of us, are sinners. And we need forgiveness, and he did too. But man can never earn forgiveness. You know what is right after this story and then the vineyard the illustration of the vineyard right after the, this, this end of 19, into 20. Matthew 20, 17 through 19. As Jesus was about to go, go up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside by Himself. And on the way, He said to them, Behold, we are going to go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to chief, chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and will hand Him over to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and crucify Him. And on the third day, He'll rise again. God made it possible. How? By sending His own Son. With you all, it's impossible, but God sent me, the God-man, the God of a man, the one that's saying, truly I say unto you, He sent me, I'm living a perfect life, and I'm going to die on the cross to pay for where you've not been righteous and give you my righteousness. With man, it's impossible. So God became man to make it possible. To pay, for our, to, to pay our penalty. To purchase everlasting life for us. And all you've got to do is believe. Well, guess what? With man, that's impossible too. You're not going to believe. So guess what? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, not of yourself, it, what? The faith is a gift of God. Not a, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Even the faith in the completed work of the Savior is a gift from God. With man, it's impossible to believe. You just have to believe and repent. Guess what? You can't repent. With man, that's impossible. You won't be able to repent unless God grants you repentance. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to, to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If God, peradventure, might grant them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth, that they might come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. He sets us free from the bondage of our sin. He pays the price. But we won't believe in the, in the sacrifice that Jesus made for us unless He gives us faith. And the faith will produce repentance when He opens our eyes. So He is the A to the Z of the, of the salvation alphabet. You're going to be saved. It's impossible with man, but God does it. Salvation's of the Lord. He is the all in all. 
at every point, beginning, middle, and end, man is completely dependent on God for salvation of man in himself. He can do nothing. With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This verse is the John 3.3 of Matthew's Gospel. John 3.3, Jesus told Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you be born again, unless a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. If man is to be saved, he must be born again from above. In Adam, all men died to the things of God, and dead men have no hope in themselves. But we have a God who's able to raise the dead. He did it with Christ, and He raises us spiritually to new life. Ephesians 2, 1-7, through 7, You who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them too we all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. With man it is impossible. With God all things are possible. Not only Pelagianism, but even Arminianism stands condemned in light of these verses. God didn't take 99 steps toward you and wait on you to take the one. He took the 100 steps. He changed your heart so you would embrace Him when He got to you. He drew you effectually to Himself. He saved you. He did not make it possible for you to save yourself. He saved you. Brought you to new life opened your eyes to your wretchedness and made you cleave to Christ Jesus as your only hope for salvation. Glory to be in God. We have hope. What's impossible with men is possible with God with whom all things are possible. It is He, through Christ, who's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by, through Him. Remember the usage of hard and difficult that we cited earlier? from that Jewish writing, if you cannot open the basket yourself for it opens with difficulty, give it to the key maker and he'll open it for you. You've been trying to earn heaven on your own. You want to enter heaven on your own. You cannot open the door to heaven by yourself for it opens with difficulty. Give it to the key maker. He made a way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Turn it over. Turn from self-trust and turn. God, thank you for opening my eyes. I cast myself upon your mercy. You're my all. What is conversion but a realization of your total inability to come to God on your own and a total dependence on Christ alone for your salvation? Look to Christ. Bind yourself to Christ. And thank God for His mercy in drawing you to Himself through the gospel. Indeed, salvation is all of grace, and nothing is too hard for God. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this Word. We thank You that although we were helpless, that we were without hope, that You made a way, not only made a way, You made it a certainty that You would save Your people from their sins. God, thank You for that. 
Thank you that we that believe can have a certainty that you've given us the faith that we have, that we can have assurance of our salvation, knowing that the good that, that, that is there, it was placed in us by you, and there's nothing in our flesh to boast of. God, help us to live in keeping with these things, not to become uh, proud of heart or condescending, looking down on even those that don't have faith, but to be people who are uh, vehicles of the gospel, that we are uh, conduits of grace to others. God, that you would give us these broken hearts like you had, even for the rich young ruler, that you would love them and that we would plead with them and that you would do the impossible by drawing them effectually to yourself. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.